Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is New York Times best-selling author Lisa C. She is the author of many novels and one work of nonfiction, including The Island of Sea Women, The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane, Snowflower and the Secret Fan, and many more. Her new novel is Lady Tan's Circle of Women, which is published by our friends at Scribner. Lisa, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me back. It's an honor to have you here. And listeners, I have to say before we get started, I've never been disappointed by a Lisa C. novel. This one is no different. What a fantastic, remarkable novel it is. And what a tear uh, Scribner and and Simon & Schuster are on this year. There's just so many amazing things coming out right now. Um, But Lisa, uh, I'm hoping you can take just a moment to set this novel up for our listeners. Yeah, so it's actually based on the true story of a woman um, physician in the Ming Dynasty, so 500 years ago, right there, that's pretty amazing to me anyway. Uh, China does have a history of female doctors going back about 2,000 years, but, you know, very few and far between. So she was quite unique just in that way. Mm -hmm. But when she turned 50 in 1511, she published a book of her cases called uh, Miscellaneous Records of a Female Doctor. And um, that book is still in print in Chinese. It's still in print in English and in many languages around the world because so many of her remedies are still used today in traditional Chinese medicine. Anyway, when I thought about that, I just I just kept going back to this idea of how many books can we think of from, you know, before 1500 um, that are still in print today? I mean, there's some obvious ones, right? Like the Bible, the Iliad, the Odyssey, some Greek tragedies and comedies. Beowulf is in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can expand beyond the Western canon to like the Mahabharata and the I Ching and some other books in China, like the Book of Odes those kinds of things, but all of them written by, by men. And so, um, you know, it takes still a while before you start to see books that were written by women. There are a couple, the tales of Genji from Japan and um, the books by Hildegard von Bingen, a Catholic nun in the 1100s. But other than that, we have to wait till, you know, the Bronte sisters, Jane Austen, um, George Sand, uh, you know, finally, finally to Virginia Woolf about 100 years ago. So the fact that her work was still in print after so long just really just blew my mind. <laughs> it really did. And I just became obsessed with her. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Thank you, Lisa. And um, assuming Homer was a man, we think so anyway. Um, but I'm dating myself a bit here, Lisa, but I remember when the binding feet binding was uh, something that folks were talking about on the popular level all of the sudden. Uh, Can you tell us about the practice of foot binding and why it was done? So um, I did write, I mean, I have written about foot binding and Mm -hmm. uh, this would be my third book, I think, where it's sort of in there. and each one has been different with Snowflower and the Secret Fan. It was more about the process of, of, of it and what happened to a little girl as it was happening. 
um, for peony and love. It was more like how you felt as a mother doing it. Right. And this time I, I was really looking at more of like the health issues around it and um, that this was a lifelong project. I mean, yes, you go through the process when you're five, six, seven years old, somewhere in there, where the, your toes are broken, the bones in your midfoot are broken, and and everything's rolled over sort of like a, a sock, you know, rolling up a sock in a drawer. It's sort of like what they were doing with your feet, mm. so that by the end, you're basically walking on your big toe, mm. uh, and all the rest of it has been rolled and tucked away. Mm. So... Um, you know, the way to visualize an ideal size bound foot is just to look at your own thumb mm. about an inch wide and three inches long. But like I said, this was a lifelong project, you know, just because you, you got it done didn't mean you were done with it. So you had to care for them in very specific ways mm. um, so that you wouldn't get an infection or, well, mainly any type of infection that could get in there. And um, women continue to die from infections throughout their life, you know, different. Well, if they died from an infection, yes, that was the end of their lifetime. <laughs> right. Yeah. What, a, what an uh, interesting practice to say the least. Well, um, let's talk about medicine, Lisa. What are the major differences between medicine as practiced in the United States in 2023 and medicine as practiced in the mid-1400s to early 1500s in China? Well, first of all, I would say that um, if you were going to a traditional medicine physician in China today, mm -hmm. that they would be doing a lot of the things that were done 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, the, obviously, the practice has evolved and changed, but so much of it is so very old, and the concepts of it are very old. And certainly many of the treatments are really old. So it's not, it's not really an issue of how the 2023 versus 1500. It's more of just the practice in general. Mm -hmm. So in Western medicine, we think of organs as something you could actually touch. You know, you could cut up on someone's chest and touch their heart or look at their lungs, um, the liver, the spleen, all, you know, it's very organ based mm. and um, it, in terms of function. Mm -hmm. But in traditional Chinese medicine, it's not about the function per se. It's more that you're taking those organs like like the heart um, and thinking of it more like with a capital H more of, as a almost metaphysical concept and system that's running through your body. I, th I think the best example is um, the kidney. So we know, kid you know, what kidneys are for, but in Chinese medicine, they're very related to things like, well, to water. Mm. So tears, sweating, you know, it's not just getting rid of the bad stuff in your body by urinating, you know, it's, 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 you're thinking about all the water that's in the body and, and the, and the ways that the kidney would have an effect sort of in a, in a broader sense. Mm -hmm. But if you think about something like tears, that's an emotion, you know, that comes from an emotion. So um, the emotions are very, very tied um, and very much considered 
in traditional medicine, I think we're Chinese medicine, I think we're seeing that more now in the West, the kind of acknowledgement of how our emotions do affect our health. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's really ingrained in traditional Chinese medicine. And, and also, I, I guess, just very quickly, that the whole idea is to kind of balance the chi, the life force. Mm -hmm. inside. So, you know, this kind of balance between yin and the yang, light and dark, male, female, that you're trying to get this balance in your body so that your chi, your life force is functioning at, at its best. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Lisa. And how much research did you need to do on Chinese medical practices, specifically from this era, um, for your novel? And then conversely, because I know um, your catalog, and maybe our listeners do, maybe they don't, but how much um, of the research you've done from previous novels carried over into this one? Well, first, this was this one I had to do in a completely different way, right? Because we were in the middle of a pandemic. Right. So mm -hmm. Ordinarily, I always go to every place I write about. I couldn't go to China. Mm -hmm. um, ordinarily, I go to different archives and research libraries. They were all closed, and they actually remained closed um, for the entire time that I was working on the book. So I actually had to do all the research completely differently than I have in the past. Yes, I poked around on the internet to see what I could see, but mm -hmm. this time I had, I reached out to scholars one-on-one -on, -one on Zoom, mm -hmm. you know, and talked to people to really get a sense of their research and, and what they've been studying for, you know, 20, 30, 40, years mm -hmm. so that they were the most knowledgeable people. Mm -hmm. So I, another part of your question was how much did I already know? And I do think that by now I do have a certain body of knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and um, whether it's from my own family or whether it's from the research that I've done on, for these various books. I mean, I have, you know, a pretty extensive library of, of books here at home as well, so that I can, um, you know, for this book, look up um, what people were wearing in the in the 1500s, what was their hairstyle like? What kind of makeup did they use? Um, how did they make that makeup? Um, what did the houses look like? What was the architecture? What kind of interior um, you know, furnishings did people have? How did they keep warm? How did you mail a letter? Could you mail a letter? That turned out to be a big question for me, was did they have a mail system in the Ming dynasty? So I think on every aspect of the book, with you know, what was it like for um, courtesans? What was it like for concubines? What was it like if you were a eunuch living in the in the imperial palace? You know, so there were so many different areas of things that I researched. Some of them I was already kind of familiar with or had stuff here at home that I could look up, but other things that I really had to reach out in ways that I hadn't in the past. Right. Thank you, Lisa. And do you read Chinese? I don't. I mean, I can recognize certain characters, but the Chinese that would have been written in that time period is classical Chinese. And, you know, even today, not many people know how to read that. You need a very special scholar who can who can do that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. 
Lisa. Um, I want to ask about a quote from an early page in your novel, and I would like, like for you to unpack this quote for us. And that quote is, remind yourself that one day your suffering will be proof to your husband of your love, end quote. What's going on here? Can you unpack this statement for us, Lisa? As I recall, but I, I have, you, you've read it more recently than I have, uh, is that this is Yen Shun's mother talking to her uh, uh, you know, in the process of foot binding and, and encouraging her um, with her foot binding. And, uh, you know, there's so many reasons that foot binding existed, so many reasons why it lasted so long. But one of those was it, it, it did, um, it was like a, a measure of a girl's inner fortitude mm -hmm. and her strength. And her ability to um, undergo physical, you know, physical pain, physical distress over a long time period, and this was kind of a, a, a marriageable, um, you know, a good attribute for when other families were looking for women to marry their sons. That somebody who can endure and persist uh, with physical pain, but just even other types of discomfort, that this was a selling point to prospective, um, the families of prospective grooms. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that answer, Lisa. More along these lines after the break, but first, listeners, we are going to pause here for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Lisa C. The Book and Podcast would like to thank Libro.fm Audiobooks for their sponsorship. Libro.fm has the same audiobooks at the same prices as their major competitor. You know the name. But instead of supporting the Big River, you'll be supporting your favorite neighborhood bookstores. Please head on over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore, explore booksellers in the process. I'm back with Lisa C., author of Lady Tan's Circle of Women, which is published by our friends at Scribner. Lisa, I often tell customers in our store, Explore Booksellers in Aspen, Colorado, that this novel is about gender roles, but not in the way that folks might guess in 2023. Uh, besides the things we have already discussed, feet binding, etc., uh, what was expected of females uh, in late 15th um, century, early 16th century China? Um, what were women and girls not allowed to do, for example? This was a time when Confucian thought really infused society, culture, and, and family. Mm. He, I, th I think we can consider him a great philosopher. Mm. However, there were things I think in his code that I, I, I personally wouldn't agree with. He, he did not have a lot of affection for women. I think that's fair to say, or yeah. respect for women. And so he has all these things, things like uh, when a girl obey her father, when a wife obey her husband, when a widow obey her son, an educated woman is a worthless woman. 
a good woman should never take more than three steps beyond her front gate. Mm -hmm. So really, you know, just those three, be uneducated, obey, 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 and never venture out that you're, you're going to stay inside mm. and, and protected, but you're also cut off from the outside world. Mm. Now, this isn't across the board. Obviously, poor women, working women were out and about, you know, they, they had to work, they had to be in the outside world, they had to work in the fields, for example. But for elite women, they, they had these very confined lives where they lived first in their parents' home and then later in their husband's family compound, often, you know, big compound where you might live with 40 or more of your husband's relatives. And, and that would be it. You wouldn't venture out at all. So when I, you know, this is one of the things when I thought about Tanyan Shan, this female doctor, is that she did follow a lot of those strictures. You know, she she was married in, you know, out into an arranged marriage when she was 15. She had four children. She managed her husband's household. But within that, she she did kind of break through these societal constraints and to become a doctor. And, you know, all of her patients were women and girls. They're be- most scholars believe that they're, you know, elite women and girls who live in this compound, plus the servants who take care of them, you know, so a kitchen maid, um, somebody who's, you know, like a lady's maid, that kind of thing. But she also had a few other cases that really broke the mold. Um, a woman who holds the tiller on a ship, another woman who is a brick and tile maker. So if she never was allowed to venture out, how did she meet those women? Mm. You know, and 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 those were not the kind of people that you would ever just let into your house. So they weren't just coming and knocking on the door and say, well, you know, will you treat me? Mm. So to me, this this was one of the things that just obsessed me was just thinking about how did she meet that killer woman? How did she meet that tile maker? When I would talk to scholars, and and again, scholars think most of the patients are the women and girls from this elite family. But I would ask scholars, you know, how do you think she met them? Mm -hmm. And, you know, they had different ideas. They ended up not being any of the ideas, ways that I thought of. I thought mine were actually more plausible. <laughs> but but I it it was really an interesting um, exercise in a sense to to ask those scholars because first of all, they're always so rooted in just the facts. Mm. So in many cases, they've never even thought about it they've just accepted that she had these cases that were aberrations, but didn't really question it and how, or how they came to be. But then once I could get them to really try to think creatively mm-hmm. about it, it, you know, it was interesting to see what they came up with. Yeah, absolutely. And I have a lot of follow-up questions there. Um, first, I so I've been to China, but it's been 20 something odd years at this point. Uh, do you think that uh, gender roles have changed uh, in the China of 2023? Absolutely. You know, there isn't much that's positive that I could say about Mao. 
-hmm. but he uh, was the first to say women hold up half the sky. Mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of organizations now that have that as their logo, you know, half the sky, things like Mm -hmm. that. Um, But he meant it. So he took power in 1949 Mm -hmm. and he felt that women needed to come out into the world. Mm -hmm. And so that meant, you know, maybe they worked in the fields, maybe they worked in a factory, maybe they went to school and became a dentist or an engineer or, you know, whatever, professional types of things and trade trade things as well. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, China was way ahead of the West in terms of equal rights and and equal kind of work for women. Mm. Now, that said, China is really on a par with the United States and the rest of the world where we're not they're not even close to equal pay for equal work. Mm. But the fact is he you know, he really pushed for women to come out and join the world and that truly was revolutionary. Thank you so much, Lisa. Um, you alluded to some of this earlier, but a lot of the men in your novel are married, but they have other women in their lives who live in their homes. Um, can you tell our listeners about these arrangements? What role these women's filled? For example, was it um, an accepted practice to have concubines living in your home? Yes, it was an accepted um, practice to have concubines, particularly if you were wealthy mm-hmm. and highly educated and successful. But uh, even my great grandfather, mm-hmm. who was illiterate and mm-hmm. came here as an Im- to the United States as an immigrant, he had two concubines, or we, we'll call them his third and fourth wives mm-hmm. um, in China. Mm-hmm. And and uh, one of them he brought here, mm-hmm. but that was a very accepted practice, and it was a way that men could show to the world, look, look how wealthy I am, look how successful I am. Mm-hmm. I don't just have one wife; I have multiple wives, or I don't just have one wife; I I have her and maybe some other wives, and also concubines as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and a related question sort of um this is about the homes and estates in this novel um can you describe what these homes look like for our listeners specifically the courtyards and the amounts of courtyards in these homes which is something that keeps coming up in in your novel so if you imagine a piece of property that's entirely enclosed within wall you know a a walled compound Mm -hmm. and that you would as you enter, they're sort of the more public buildings are towards the front. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you pass through courtyards that are lined on all sides by different rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes one set of a family might live there, or it might have the purpose of the business dealings for a family. It might be where the whole family gathers for um, a celebratory meal for, again, you know, 40 to 100 people Mm. um, or more. The further back you went into these courtyard homes, the more private they became Mm. until you got to the very back, which is where the women's quarters were. Mm. And these were 
you know, considered to be the most protected, the most sheltered from the outside world. Um, for this book, I really modeled the house on um, the home of a salt merchant mm. in China that's somewhere between Pingyao and, and Beijing. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's on that road there. And he had this huge, you know, he was very, very wealthy. The salt, salt merchant controlled all the salt in that area. Mm -hmm. And so I think it had something like 55 bedrooms. I mean, it's really big. Um, and when I went there, and this has got to be 25 years ago is when I was still doing the mysteries. I was coming back from a research trip. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, oh, this place looks, you know, vaguely familiar. Mm -hmm. That's because it was used in the filming of Ray, the film Raise the Red Lantern. Oh, mm -hmm. So that, you know, if you haven't seen that movie, that's a great way to sort of get a sense of what these houses look like. Mm -hmm. Or even if you've looked at photos or been to the Forbidden City, mm -hmm. even the Forbidden City has, it, it's just, you know, a compound home on steroids. Mm -hmm. You know, it's much, much bigger. But if you took that idea and just reduced it so that it was just a family living there instead of the, the true seat of power with the emperor and the empress. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Lisa. Um, back to medicine for a moment. And I realize that a lot of your novel turns on this comparison here. But um, there is a section that compares medical knowledge received via reading versus medical knowledge obtained uh, by being passed down from generation to generation, uh, which was preferred at this moment of time in this culture and why? I don't know that one was preferred over the other. They were just very different. So uh, Tan Yanshan's grandfather was an imperial scholar and after and very high up in the government, you know, this very high government appointment. Mm -hmm. um, she came from a long line of, of imperial scholars. Mm -hmm. So he, when he retired, he took up the study of medicine and was what was known as a literati doctor, somebody who learns medicine by reading books. Mm -hmm. His wife, Yan Shen's grandmother, was a hereditary doctor, someone who had learned from her parents, who'd learned from their parents, who'd learned from their parents, and so on. Mm. So she mostly learned from her grandmother. That was very hands-on. Mm. If it were me and I had a choice, I think I would want to go with the people who had had this passed down generation to generation because you had been learning at someone's side probably for your whole lifetime. I mean, I, I think of in my my family, you know, my mother was a writer, my mother's father was a writer. I grew up around writers. I saw how they worked. Um, I heard them talking about issues about editing and things like that. So it's it all it becomes almost like a lifelong apprenticeship, mm -hmm. which is very different than opening a book and, oh, here, here's what to do if somebody has wind itching. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. I now uh, understand at least part of the reason of why you're such a wonderful writer, Lisa. Um, and uh, finally, listeners, we have barely grazed the surface of this wonderful novel, which I cannot recommend highly enough. The story is fascinating. The writing is as good as it gets. Uh, but finally, Lisa, I'm going to talk about arranged marriages, which you alluded to earlier uh, as well, specifically as they pertain to the Zodiac. 
Uh, in this novel, when marriage is discussed for our protagonist, there are some great financial and social matches that are turned down because of the year in which the potential match was born. Can you explain for our listeners what is going on here? Well, let me just preface this by saying that people look at the Chinese zodiac much like people look at the Western zodiac in the sense that some people are just like, this morning, I looked in the paper, I turned the page, there was my horoscope, I read it. Did mm -hmm. I think it was accurate for today? No, but I, I read it because it was in front of me. But there are other people who have their charts drawn and really, you know, make decisions based on what their chart says. So you have a kind of spectrum, right, of how people look at the at the Western zodiac, and the same is true in China. However, I it's much more serious because you're born into a particular year, mm -hmm. and each year of you know the rabbit has different attributes than a tiger who has different attributes, you know, good and bad mm -hmm. attributes uh, that than a horse or an ox or a snake or a rat. And so there are these traditions of who, who of compatibility. Mm -hmm. And you have that in the Western Zodiac as well, right? Um, but, but these things of compatibility like um, a horse should never marry a rooster because the rooster will always ride on the horse's back. Mm. You know, so there, there are things that are just sort of tied that way. And I suppose, and I, I don't know the Western Zodiac well enough, but it would be like saying, you know, a Taurus should never marry um, an Aquarian because the the bull is going to wade all through that water. Right. <laughs> You know, uh, and just splash around. I mean, I, I'm making that up, but mm -hmm. but there are similarities um, in that in that way. Mm -hmm. But um, in those days in China, people really did look when, when they were preparing. You know, except hearing offers of marriage mm -hmm. from other families that were being brought by the matchmaker. Um, you're looking at you know the year someone was born, what their their other influences. You know, are you a water snake, a metal snake, um, earth snake? So that those also change um, in a particular year. So it gives a more nuanced attributes. Mm. Um, and people took it seriously, you know. <laughs> but however, sometimes maybe money would would trump all of that mm -hmm. yeah you know if it was a super but you know in her case mm -hmm. um at least in the novel the grandparents because they're wealthy themselves are not as worried about matching her money to money or education to education she's already very highly educated you know the assumption is she would meet someone who's equally educated or you know preparing to become an imperial scholar yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for providing that context. And thank you for writing this wonderful novel, the latest amongst many, many wonderful novels and books that you have gifted us with. Listeners, I've been speaking with Lisa C., author of Lady Tan's Circle of Women, which is published by our friends at Scribner. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Lisa C. for joining me. Copies of Lady Tan's Circle of Women can be 
ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space, to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Bookin'.